Welcome to the 16th episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Agosa Asimoda, and I am the Senior Content Editor at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, I got a chance to sit down with Gina Livermore, the Director of the Center for Studying Disability Policy, to discuss the policy work that the Center is doing to empower and improve outcomes for people living with disabilities. We hope you enjoy. Gina, thank you so much for speaking with me. I'd love to get started with you sharing about the Center for Studying Disability Policy. What is the mission and what is your role at the organization? Sure. Uh, thanks for inviting me to be a part of your podcast series. My name is Gina Livermore, and I'm the director of Mathematica's Center for Studying Disability Policy. And maybe I should start by describing what Mathematica is. Uh, Mathematica is a professional research organization that's been around for about 50 years. We have over 1,200 researchers with expertise in health, education, and welfare programs and policies. And most of the work we do is for federal and state governments, and it usually involves conducting research to help them better understand a particular program or policy issue or to test new ways of serving their, their target populations. So in 2007, uh, Mathematica established the Center for Studying Disability Policy, and we have about 30 researchers affiliated with the center who work full-time on disability policy issues. And the goal of the center is to provide policymakers and program administrators with evidence they can use to make informed decisions about disability policy. And that might not sound really exciting to most people, but a lot of what we do is evaluate interventions designed to empower people with disabilities and improve their economic well-being, and we think that part of it's pretty exciting. Great. So um, just following up on that and the mission, um, so the sustained improvement and empowerment of people with disabilities definitely requires the ho- like holistic approaches with many components, and we'd love to get an idea of what strategies the center employs to achieve its mission. Sure, Um, and you're right, Uh, uh, a wide range of factors can affect the well-being of people with disabilities, and and so holistic approaches are are needed, and there are literally hundreds of programs and policies out there that affect this population. An important issue in thinking about disability policy is how fragmented and complicated the programs are, the, the landscape is, and it makes it really hard for people with disabilities to navigate all of these programs. It also makes it hard for service pri- providers to offer those holistic approaches because things are chopped up and in different funding silos and different access points where people can get services and it's not well coordinated. And it's also challenging for policymakers to understand the broader service landscape and see where the gaps are in the safety net. Um, Disability policy is also complicated by the different definitions of what disability means, um, and programs use a whole bunch of different definitions for eligibility purposes, and national surveys uh, uh, don't even agree on how to measure how many people with disabilities there are in the United States. So according to the the most commonly accepted measure used in national surveys, about 13% of people in the U.S. have a disability. But if you look at data from another survey that defines disability much more broadly, it suggests that it's about twice, twice that number. So given the complexity of the issues and programs, we think our mission is to provide useful information to policymakers is important. Uh, and some of the strategies we use are, are pretty common sense. It's uh, probably stuff that you're doing as well to share um, policy-relevant information with, with your listeners. Um, first, uh, but 
probably one of the most important things is um, to our center and to Mathematica in general is that we conduct high quality research that directly addresses the questions that policymakers have. And we do so with the most rigorous and objective methods available. It's really important that our work is objective. Uh, when we evaluate programs and policies, we don't have a vested interest in the outcome. There aren't, we, there aren't political angles on it. Um, and we try to be completely transparent about the strengths and limitations of our methods. Uh, we also try to present our research findings in ways that policymakers and the public can understand them. We want to be easily accessible and, and used by a wide range of people, not just understood by, by researchers. Um, I'll admit we don't always succeed in doing that very well because most of the people here are geeky researchers and they <laughs> break like geeky researchers sometimes. Uh, but the whole point of our work is to help improve disability programs and policies. So making the findings of our work accessible and clearly outlining their policy implications is something we, we really try to do. Um, we also try to make the information easily available in a number of ways. We have a website where we post reports and briefs. We regularly host forums and webinars to educate the public about particular issues. We publish in journals, speak at conferences, and we conduct briefings with policymakers and program officials. We also make sure that our products are accessible to people with disabilities. Uh, for example, providing closed captioning at conferences and during our webinars and ensuring that our written products can be read by software um, that people with visual impairments use to read documents. Finally, we um, also have offered internships and fellowships to students interested in learning about disability policy or doing research in that area. We've done that more in the past. Um, right now, one of our grants is not supporting that directly through Mathematica, but through one of our partners. But those opportunities are still available. Great. Thank you so much for that overview. And building on that, can you share some of the policy areas that the center focuses on? Sure. I'd say that Issues related to healthcare and employment are probably the most common policy areas we look at. So having affordable health insurance is really critical to people with disabilities, um, many who need ongoing medical care to address their health conditions. So the availability of, of private versus public insurance, the cost and generosity of that insurance, these things can affect people's decisions about whether or not they, they work. And that's because the primary, a primary way that people with disabilities access public health insurance is through the federal disability programs. And to be eligible, eligible for those programs, um, you have to demonstrate that, that you can't work or earn a lot of money, um, that you're in effect disabled. Uh, in the healthcare arena, we've studied the effects of the Affordable Care Act on people with disabilities, in particular how certain provisions of the act have affected their insurance coverage, their employment, and their participation in the federal disability programs. We've also looked at different aspects of Medicare and Medicaid programs that affect people with disabilities related to eligibility for those programs, costs, and, and the services they provide. Um, with respect to employment, a lot of factors can affect the employment of people with disabilities, including their health and personal care needs, economic incentives around whether to apply for long-term disability benefits or other welfare benefits, uh, obtaining work accommodations, and having reliable transportation. A lot of things have to be in place for anyone to successfully work, and, and when you add a disabling health condition into the mix, it can get a lot more complex for people. 
Uh, Walter Oy is a labor economist who himself was blind, and he has this great quote. He says, disability steals time. Mm. And if you have to deal, I mean, basically saying if you have to deal with significant medical conditions or functional limitations, you have a lot less time for other things, yeah. including work. And, you know, other things equal that can make not working more attractive. So this whole question about employment and, and how the public programs and policies we have in place affect that is an important issue. We've conducted a lot of studies to learn about the factors that help or hinder the employment of people with disabilities, and we've evaluated um, numerous interventions designed to address their work barriers, promote employment, and, and reduce reliance on, on public programs. We've also done research to identify promising approaches to help workers who become ill or injured stay connected to the labor force rather than going on long-term disability benefits. Um, once people get to the point where they're on disability benefits, it's really hard to get back to work. And it's not like the person gets rich when they're on disability benefits. It, it usually means that they have a future of very limited income. Uh, for the rest of their lives. So it's important that people get help as soon as possible after the onset uh, of a condition that might lead to disability. But unfortunately, there really are not a lot of options out there for that kind of early intervention. Great. Thank you so much for that. I'd like to dive into some of the work that the Center is doing specifically in the realm of education and youth. I know that currently you guys are working to document the implementation of the IDEA Act, so the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act at the state and local level, and also reviewing education interventions to help children with disabilities. So can you share more about those efforts and any other efforts that are underway to enhance the educational experience for children with disabilities? Sure. So youth with disabilities face a lot of special challenges. Uh, you know, having a disability at a young age can interfere with the child's ability to gain the skills, experiences they need to successfully transition to adulthood. And, and um, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, is a really important piece of legislation that helps ensure that children with disabilities get a public education that's responsive to their needs. Um, IDEA includes requirements for schools to identify children with special needs and provide them with appropriate educational supports. Uh, one of the projects we have right now is documenting how schools are actually implementing those provisions, um, and we're collecting information about the specific types of, of supports that they, they provide. This project is updating a similar study that the U.S. Department of Education conducted about a decade ago, and I expect that a lot has changed in the special education world uh, since that time, um, but the study is still in the early stages, so we don't have any findings to talk about <laughs> just yet. Um, another project we're working on is uh, an evaluation of something called the Promoting Readiness of Minors in SSI, or PROMISE. And this is a demonstration sponsored by the U.S. Department of Education, and the Department of Education awarded states funding to implement programs designed to help youth with disabilities who are receiving supplemental security income or the SSI benefits uh, make a successful transition to adulthood. And the PROMISE programs are providing, they're, they're, uh, providing case management, work-based learning experiences, benefits counseling, and financial education to SSI youth starting at age 14. 
And they're also providing parent training and other services to the families of these youth. And the goal is to improve their educational employment outcomes so that in the long term, they will reduce their reliance on SSI and, and other public programs as adults. And Promise has several features that were considered innovative at the time it was first implemented back in 2013. And um, this includes, well, the agencies within a state that provide services to youth, like the schools, vocational rehabilitation, mental health agencies, intellectual disabilities agencies, they're supposed to collaborate with each other to um, provide services in a more coordinated way. And this is unique because that generally doesn't happen out there in the fragmented program world. Um, they're also uh, providing the services starting at age 14, which at the time that was much younger than had been done, typically done in the past. They typically started transition services uh, around age 16. And finally, Promise focuses on the family as a whole and not just the youth. So that really makes it a, a, a bit more unique than other types of uh, transition interventions. In a related area, the transition between school and adulthood can be especially challenging for youth with disabilities. And I'd love to know if the center has been doing anything to help students with disabilities prepare for life after high school. Well, that, that's more or less what Promise is doing. Um, we also have some other demonstrations in that, that policy area um, that we're evaluating. You know, we don't provide the direct services to anyone, but we're collecting the information and trying to determine if certain approaches are, are working or not. Another one is um, in the state of Vermont, there is an intervention where they're trying to connect students to um, community colleges to improve their uh, post-high school education, get them more connected with, with that kind of, uh, uh, you know, intervention um, and there's you know work-based learning experiences which I talked about with promise they tend to be the one thing that in the literature has been shown to really have the biggest impact uh, for kids with disabilities in terms of successful longer-term outcomes uh, there's not a lot of quantitative evidence on, on other types of transition interventions but that one is one that people always hang their hat on and try to try to uh, provide and um, implement in a good way. So, so a lot of the programs that we're looking at, including Promise, that's a big, that's an important piece of it to to provide them. When I say work-based learning experience, it's it can be anything from career exploring career options, job shadowing people, going in and talking to businesses if, to figure out your interests and you know if, if you can do that, and doing volunteer activities, having paid internships, or having a summer job. You know, and it it's kind of common sense stuff. You know, the more work experience you have, the more likely you're going to work in the future, mm -hmm. and that's something that in the past, you know kids with disabilities might have been passed over in terms of the expectations for being able to work, either by the parents or whoever, the system, or their own expectations because they just, you know, they have a significant disability and they, and they probably never thought they could be successful. Yes, absolutely. So monitoring and evaluation seem to be used often in the work that the center does. How does that inform disability policy and how do you narrow down the right methods for evaluation? Yeah, when you say it, it sounds so boring. Monitoring and evaluation, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it 
a lot, a lot of the work we do is evaluating whether different policies or programs have the effect the government hoped for or collecting information to document how something was implemented. So how does that inform disability policy? Well, just about all of the work we do is to try to answer specific questions that a program or policymaker has. And what the right methods are really depends on the questions. And when evaluating intervention, it's important to have a good comparison, something to compare it to. The comparison group tells you what would have happened without the intervention, and so it allows you to isolate the impact of the intervention. And a randomized controlled trial is considered the most rigorous method for evaluating an intervention. And um, we do those kinds of studies all the time, and this is the approach we're using to evaluate the PROMISE program I mentioned before, so that, that's sort of a good example. Um, the youth who enrolled in PROMISE were randomly assigned to either receive the PROMISE intervention um, or the treatment um, or receive usual services available in their communities, which we consider to be the control. And because we randomly assigned the youth to either treatment or control, I mean, literally a computer randomly assigned them. People have no, so it's truly random. We, we can be sure that any differences we see between the groups can be attributed to promise and are not due to something else going on because the groups are starting out equivalent um, and then one goes one way, one goes the other, and then we look at what happens. So we're following the promise youth for five years after they enroll in study through surveys and program administrative data. And we want to see how promise affects their education, employment, self-determination, well-being, and reliance on federal programs. But it's not always possible to randomize control trial. Um, and so sometimes we have to get creative and figure out other ways to get a decent comparison group. And sometimes it's just simply not possible to have any kind of comparison group. So we end up uh, only being able to document the outcomes of a particular program and, and, and their experiences and not really be able to say much about the impact yeah. of the program. Yeah. But to answer your question, I, I, I think the most important first step in narrowing down the right methods is to first be very clear about what the questions, uh, what the questions are you want to answer. After that, it seems it's not difficult to figure out the best way to answer the question. <laughs> um, it's also really important to collect information that reflects the perspectives of the people affected by the intervention. A lot of times we focus on the data, the data, the data, the, the quantitative piece of it. But qualitative information about the experiences of the program staff, the participants, is just as important as the quantitative data on those participants' outcomes. Without that personal perspective of, of the staff and participants, it's hard to know why a program worked or didn't work, you know, once you've analyzed the data. So that really gives the color on it. And so our methods tend to be, uh, we use a lot of methods. Uh, you know, we'll do interviews with people, we'll do focus groups, we'll do surveys, and of course administrative data is, a, is an important piece of, of what we look at. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, I definitely hear you about the hardships of causal attribution <laughs> when it comes to evaluation. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's quite the feat. Um, so can you tell me about how do you get, how, how the center gets policymakers and program administrators on board to commit toward progressive disability policies? And if you can share if there's any nuances between working with the policymaker in the public sector versus the program administrator in the private sector? It's because we're an objective research organization. We typically don't try to advocate or lobby for one course or an action or another. Um, 
Rather, we're trying to provide evidence that can inform decisions. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we don't come up with new ideas and give our opinions. Uh, we often do that in the context of the dissemination activities I, I talked about before. Uh, but we generally are not out there advocating for some new program or policy in particular. It, it does seem like policymakers are more eager for information and ideas when they're facing some kind of crisis. Yeah. Um, I, an example is a, a few years ago um, the, when the Social Security Disability Insurance Trust Fund was nearing insolvency, there was a lot of interest in figuring out ways to stem the large growth in, in the disability insurance program. And a, a couple of my colleagues, you know, along with some other people, there were some special issues and special conferences all about this, and they came up uh, with an approach that they've been promoting in various ways to address that issue. Um, but that case is probably the exception to the general rule, rule that we don't push specific, specific approaches. Um, We've not engaged a lot with the private sector in our work. And when I'm thinking of private sector, I wasn't, you, you said, uh, I was thinking more like, you know, corporate. Mm. Um, but maybe you're talking also about nonprofits. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and not just uh, the people who may be the service providers and not big health plans and things like that. Um, and we do interact with those folks, mostly in the context of the interventions we're studying, because those are the people who are delivering them, typically. I don't think that we engage much, or we haven't in the past, with the kind of corporate private sector, like private disability insurance companies or private health plans. Um, I think it's something we'd like to do more, but we really haven't had many opportunities to do that, because we really are so focused on kind of federal and state programs and policies yeah. and, you know, the private sector comes in in certain ways, but usually not in the way that we're, we're involved. Great. So we did speak at length about the work that the sensor is doing, the strategies that they employ, um, the role of things like evaluation, and just to kind of wrap up the interview, we kind of like to end on like a feel-good sentiment, but um, what is the ultimate vision that the Center for Studying Disability Policy is working toward? I think the ultimate vision is, is not so different from what one might envision for all people, um, that we as a nation have a coordinated and effective set of programs and policies that help enable people with disabilities to participate in society and achieve their full potential. Our, our center's limited role in achieving that vision is to provide objective information about trends and evidence that we hope will guide policymakers' decisions in, the, in that direction. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. If you are interested in receiving notifications for future episodes and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list on the CPR website. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter.